Open your Scriptures to Matthew 16. We'll eventually get to Ephesians 4. But Matthew 16 is where we are going to begin. How many of you zoned out halfway through that Scripture reading? You're not going to to admit that. Um, that, That was a lot of words without a period. That is a single sentence. And it seems to just go on and on and on and on. But what we're going to find out is loaded within that single sentence are all these different terms for growth. And that's going to help us this morning answer one of three questions, and that is, how do churches grow? How do churches grow? First, I want to say that I'm very thankful to be here. very thankful to be preaching my second sermon as your new old lead pastor. And... I think there was a, a misunderstanding that um, maybe on both sides that this would just be familiar and ordinary and it hasn't been because you have changed individually and as a church Highlands has changed we've changed you don't live overseas and away from your six children for the first time over every major holiday without changing and so there's a lot of change that has taken place but I do want to let you know uh, we are very thankful to be with you and to be serving alongside of you in this capacity, and I'm very thankful that you are here also. Uh, you have a very important place, and you are not overlooked, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to get to know some of you better and some of you for the first time. How do churches grow? You look around and see the empty seats that at one time were filled. It's not... It's not an unimportant question. We can learn from church growth studies. There are many out there. You just have to choose. You just have to type in a search, and there is no shortage of information and pointers on how to grow a church. Provide a compelling vision. That's a good thing. We need that. Inspiring leadership with a focus on leadership development. That's also a good thing. A committed membership. I'd say that's a good thing. Self-reflecting humility, flexible structures in the organization. Those are all good things. And they seem sensible, even wise to implement. But here's the problem I have with some of those things that those are the very principles that could grow a secular business as well. And those are some of the very principles that are growing large, what are called megachurches throughout the world, that have deep financial resources and very impressive structures and yet do not preach Christ crucified. But they're growing And they're seemingly successful, but they have removed the offense of the Gospel that unless you go through Jesus, John 14, verse 6, you do not get to the Father. Now there are, let me caveat here, there are some large churches that do preach Christ and the Gospel. And we want to celebrate that as well. But what we want to do is sort of peel down under the layers and ask, what scripturally grows a church? 
Numerical and financial growth are not necessarily synonymous with spiritual growth. I actually believe if you open up to the book of Revelation and you have these seven real churches that were located in a country that is present-day Turkey, I believe the smaller persecuted church of Smyrna was healthier and more spiritual than the larger church at Ephesus. So I want to sort of pull us back in to evaluate church growth scripturally. Three questions I'd like each of us to know the answers to. Number one, what is the church? Now that's not as easy to answer as some of you might think. What is the church? Secondly, what is the church called to do? What is our mission? And third, how does a church grow? And just so you know, and you don't get nervous as the time starts to expire, I'm going to spend most of my time on the first question. And then the second question is going to be like two sentences. And the third question will develop just a little bit, but not as much as the first. Now this is the second sermon in a three-sermon series entitled Mission Affirmed. What we want to know is what kind of mission or ministry does God affirm? What receives his, well done, my good and faithful servant? What receives his, I know your works, press on and be faithful? Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters, isn't it? His, well done. Last week, I began leading the preaching and teaching ministry at Highlands, and we turned our attention to the command and importance of preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. And the cultural mandate that sort of demands the primacy of preaching is this, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound, healthy teaching. I would say that time has come. We preach in a culture that devalues God's Word in general and rejects authoritative proclamation, absolute truth specifically. And it doesn't mean we change our strategy. We are given the command, preach the Word. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to teaching and to instruction. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4, preach the Word. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure. And, and what's beautiful about preaching, just by way of review, is that that is the primary vehicle God has chosen to proclaim. That's the word. The Greek word is to herald good news. How will they hear? Without someone preaching, Paul asks in Romans 10:14. And then I say vehicle because it's the feet that carry that gospel where it's not. Because the very next verse in Romans 10.15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I have seen some ugly feet in my life. And I remember writing a short article about this as I sat around with some of my African preacher boys that I had trained. Zambians and Kenyans and Sudanese. And looking down at their feet and they were calloused and scarred and stubbed 
because they wear these flimsy little flip-flops. And sometimes they don't have those, so they're going around in bare feet. And looking down, I thought, how beautiful are the feet of those that carry the good news. Preaching punctuates the Old Testament. Noah, Moses, Aaron, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah was not a popular preacher. The local preachers despised him. But at the end of the day, he received God's affirmation. Mission affirmed. Into the New Testament, John the Baptist. One of the first things you read about Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 is that Jesus came and what was He doing? Preaching. The Gospel saying the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus preached the Gospel that we still preach. Peter, Stephen. By the way, Stephen who preached out of season, didn't he? And he paid the ultimate price for it. But his mission was affirmed. Paul and Apollos. Where do we go from there? Where do we go from preaching that sort of punctuates the Old and the New Testament? And here's the idea I want us to understand this morning. Jesus said He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Is that how you view what's happening right here? I mean, look around. Or just look forward. It's very underwhelming. It seems very insignificant. And yet Jesus says what I'm going to do, it's the first mention of the word church in the Bible, in Matthew 16, I'm going to build something called the church. And it's going to be indestructible. What is the church? See, before we answer what grows a church, in order for us to rightly evaluate growth, we need to understand what the church is. Some of you already know this, but I am red-green colorblind. It doesn't mean I, I never see red or I never see green. I just have difficulty pulling out certain colors like purple. I can't see the red mixed with the blue, so purple is blue to me. And if you've ever taken a colorblind test, there, there are these circles with all these different colored dots, and there's numbers in there, and I can, get, I can get about 7 out of 10 of those numbers. I can see an 8 or a 3, and then all of a sudden I can't see a 7 or a 12. Sometimes I think we get church blind. We start to understand the church in ways that the world or, or popular ministry wants to define the church, but we fail to see actually scripturally what Jesus said His church is. All we see are sort of these hundreds of popular dots clamoring to say what the church is, but it's not what Scripture says it is. Sometimes it helps to identify something by defining what it's not. And I really want us to get this. Do you know that the church is not a building? And we use terminology that sort of reinforces this wrong idea. For example, this morning, what time are we going to... Well, I don't know if I can be ready in time, hon, to get to church by 10 a.m. The prayer meeting this week is at the what? 
the church. No, the church gathers for prayer on Wednesday at 7, and this morning the church has gathered at a specific location to worship God in spirit and in truth. But the church is not a building like a fitness center or an auto dealer. We can be thankful we have facilities, but the facilities simply what? Facilitate our mission. The blocks and, and the wood and the windows, even though there are crosses in our window panes and we've hung a cross on the blocks, does not make it a church. Some churches gather under acacia trees, in homes, on sandy beaches outside of Mogadishu, and they don't have a single facility, not even a bathroom. For some, the way they talk about joining a church, it sounds like they're joining a Marriott Rewards program or a Costco, something that kicks back return to them. But with a church, you're joining a people. Others view the church historically as Christendom, an empire of Christianity, an institution of power and rites and robes and rituals and crusades. The cross having become a symbol of triumphalism, of cultural superiority, and also of terror and injustice. Is that what God meant through His Son when He said, I will build My church? For some of us, it's a time slot. We attended church. We went to church. And then it's something we critique because I really enjoyed church or I didn't enjoy church and I'm going to jump on the Google page and give it a 3.5 out of 5 stars. Is that what Jesus meant when He said, I will build My church? And I think even for myself, we start to realize how we have started to fail to see the number within that circle and we've begun to define church in a way that the cultural might define it or popular religious culture might define it, but it's not really what Jesus meant. So what is the church? I've asked you to open up to Matthew 16. Here we are given Jesus' revelation to Peter of who he really is. Remember, the disciples initially knew this man was different, but they weren't quite sure if he was any better than Elijah or John the Baptist or Moses. Three times in Matthew, the word church is used. In the rest of the Gospels, it's not used. And you don't run into that term until you get into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Jesus here in Matthew 16, verse 13 takes his disciples northward away from the predominantly Jewish territory. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus here focusing on the perception of the crowds about his identity, not for his own interest, but to correct the disciples' misunderstanding. In verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now it's interesting that all those comparisons are what? What would you say those comparisons are? Positive. 
Those are godly men who made a difference. Those are rugged, holy men. Look at verse 15. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? That's what the crowds are saying. But who do you say that I am? And by the way, that's what matters. And Simon Peter, verse 16, replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are the promised one. You're the one that the Old Testament pointed to. And that confession, Peter's right confession, is the basis for what follows. Look at the next verse, verse 17. And Jesus answered him. He answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, by the way, since you can tell me who I am accurately, the Christ, the Son of God, I now am going to tell you who you are. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my... And here's the first mention of this word in the Bible. I will build my church. You are Peter parallels Peter's confession. You are the Christ. The expression, this rock, some believe that to be referring to Jesus Christ because no other other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. But actually the structure here most likely refers that to Peter. And the play on words... Petros, Peter, and Petra, rock. And that corresponds with Ephesians 2 where the Bible talks about the apostles, Peter being one of them. It says the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. And Peter gets it right. He gets the foundation right. Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. By the way, Paul viewed himself as a foundation layer. He went to places where Jesus Christ was not known and he went there to lay a foundation and he would leave before churches were strong and multiplying. Titus in Crete, Timothy in Ephesus. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my community of people. I will build those who gather together and follow me. The word church, many of you know this, is ekklesia, derived from two words, ek, out of, and kaleo, to call. So when I ask what is the church, it is a group of people called out of something. Sometimes it's used secularly, even in the New Testament. When the riot gathered to sort of attack the apostles, it's called a church. Or at least the term ecclesia is used. They were called out and together for a specific purpose. In that case, it was negative and violent. Well, what are we called out from? Just listen to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from, out of, the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of... What do you expect Paul to say there? Out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of 
light. But he doesn't. And I think it's a teaching tool. He says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, who already taught in John that he's the light of the world, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we are called out of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son, we gather together to reflect His light. Acts 26.18, one of the apostolic missions was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And then he takes it again deeper into the spiritual realm and from the power of Satan to God that they, and he repeats Colossians, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The idea that's found in Colossians. So, in the most broadest and basic sense, church refers to an assembly of people called out from darkness, from the power of Satan, and into Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is the one who builds it. That is what Jesus promised he would do. Build on Peter's confession, the right confession that Jesus is the rescuer, redeemer, savior, and he will call people out of darkness because of who Jesus Christ is. By the way, this begins to answer the third question, how does a church grow? And and the easiest answer for us is that it grows by Jesus building it. He engineers its growth. So what has he said the church should be and do? That'll help us answer that question. And it has something to do with holiness, light, and making disciples our mission. In connection to building his church, Jesus says something staggering. Look at verse 18, the latter part. I will build my church... And I'm trying to use several different phrases so we, we, we understand the importance of who we are, right? I will build my church, a rescued community who identifies with me, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The idea here, the gates of Hades, or the threshold of the realm of death, or the powers of death, indicates again who the church is. And that begins to answer the second question, what is the church called to do? And it has something to do with life and death. You gathering here together this morning at 10 a.m., the building not being the church, this not simply being a service, you gathering together here this morning has something to do with life and death in this community. And Jesus wants to build His church bigger because it does have to do with eternal life and eternal death, locally and globally. After John saw the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, he says this at the end of Revelation 1 in verses 17 to 18. John says, when I saw Him, when I saw Jesus, by the way, a man who had walked with Christ for three, three and a half years, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I will build my church. 
And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the power of death cannot prevail against who my church is and what they do. It's powerful. It's indestructible. It's beautiful. But we give it a 3.5 Google star rating. By the way, that is by way of illustration. I don't know of anybody here that has given this church or any other church a rating. I'm just using that to, to project the beauty of the church from Christ's words to what we do and view the church as. Why can't the gates of hell prevail against the church? It's a legitimate question. Because its leader, its head, its author and founder has what? Well, died, but then what? Rose from the dead, defeating death and sin and the devil. Peter's right understanding of who Jesus is and his subsequent preaching in Acts unlocks the kingdom. Matter of fact, the other two mentions of the word church in Matthew and the only other two mentions in the Gospels is found in Matthew 18 where Jesus gives to the apostles and all those who make the same confession of Jesus Christ the keys to the kingdom. He actually says, whatever you loose, whatever you free, Whatever you, what do keys do? They unlock and lock. Whatever you unlock is unlocked. And whatever you bind, whatever you lock, is locked. What authority did Jesus just give to us? Well, that authority and those keys are traced back to Peter's right confession that when we preach Jesus Christ... As the Son of God and the Messiah, we unlock the kingdom for people. Now, they still have to believe. This brings preaching and witness and the church together, and you see that unfold in the book of Acts. Jonathan Lehman, in his book, Rediscover Church, said this, If you had asked me what is a church, I could not have given you a well-formed answer. But these two ideas of preaching and people, a gospel word and a gospel society, were growing in prominence in my mind. A church, I knew, has something to do with a group of people gathering to be shaped by God's Word. That way they begin to live together as a different kind of people, one that's both in and not of the world. People like Peter who say the right thing about Jesus hold the keys to the kingdom. And preaching is heralding the truth about Jesus so that it unlocks a door. Did you know that the kingdom is locked to Buddhists? But it can be unlocked through the Gospel. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. That message both locks and unlocks the kingdom. Do you know that the kingdom is locked to Muslims and Hindus until they hear the truth about Jesus Christ that unlocks the kingdom? The kingdom is locked to atheists. Did you know the kingdom is locked to unregenerate evangelicals? 
and unsaved Baptist church members. But the good news is the gospel and the truth in Jesus Christ unlocks that door. It unlocks the kingdom. And then the church is built stone by stone, person by person. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, living stones being built into a spiritual house. The church is built by Jesus, stone by stone, person by person, as they believe in Him as their Savior and King. The very thing Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Okay, now, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Let me drill down just a little deeper. Of the 114 times the word ecclesia, the word that we translate church, is used, 109 refer to a Christian assembly. So when the Scripture uses that Greek term, it is primarily talking about a Christian assembly. So from those 109 uses, we can discover who the church is and what the church is called to do. For our understanding, that word in those 109 uses is used in three different major categories, three, di- three distinct ways. The first usage of that word denotes the entire body of God's people everywhere at all time. Those alive and those dead. And, and this is often called the universal church. Its scope is everywhere. Wayne Grudem defines it as this, the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. So I'm going to read a verse to you, and you tell me if it applies universally, globally, or locally. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Which one? It's a trick question. Well, all three, but it certainly applies universally to everyone at all times. Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. All believers of all time, everywhere, even before America was founded as a nation, the church existed. The second usage of the word ecclesia denotes the whole body of those throughout the world alive right now. This is often called the global church. This would include the visible society on earth that speak Hindi and Kiswahili and Mandarin and Russian and Arabic and English. It includes Africans and Asians and South Americans and Europeans. Every believer, the global church. And that means we're not alone. And for that we can rejoice. And, and God is doing things through His church right now in 2023 we're not even aware of. But He's building it. He's building His church. One living stone at a time, and it is beautiful. And in many cases, if you get into the rugged places of this world, it is so simple but attractive. The third usage, and the one that's used most, is believers in a particular place gathered for worship. The local church. And that's what we are. We are a local church. Acts 14.23 And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Individual assemblies. Or Romans 16 when Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. Greet also the church 
one distinct gathering in their house. Or the churches of Asia in 1 Corinthians 16, or to the church of the Thessalonians, a particular local church in Greece. These are local churches. Highlands is a local, called-out people gathered together for a specific purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Second question. What is the church called to do? Here's the, here's the simplest answer I can give now, and we'll develop this in the future together. To glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, make disciples, in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Love God, and the second is like unto it, love others as yourself. The Great Commission... Go, as you are going, make disciples, make follower learners of Jesus Christ. And you do that in the spirit of love God and love others. One man said this, major events have a role to play in church life. But the bedrock of gospel ministry is low-key, ordinary, day-to-day work that often goes unseen. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Jesus has come for outsiders. God is the God who eats with His enemies. That is the staggering nature of God's gracious character. And we are called to display that. Not just Sunday morning at 10, but Monday through Saturday as well. How does a church grow? And in conclusion, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul explicitly outlines sort of the principles of how God grows churches in all times, at all places. So it's not a mystery. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Remember, Rich read that for us, and some of our minds started to wander. And that is because it is one sentence of 150 words in the New American Standard. But what, and we're not going to read it again. But what you need to notice is that packed within that one sentence are words of progress, of increase, and of growth. And that helps us define growth scripturally and spiritually. So first of all, and I want you to look at the text. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to see it. There is a subject and a verb. Verse 11, He, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the subject. And any ministry vision that misses Christ as the main subject misunderstands who the church is and what the church is called to do. He, and here's the verb, he did something. What did he do? He, verse 11, what? He gave. And he gives all kinds of gifts. But Ephesians is specifically talking right now about the church. And he gave, and I don't think we're expecting this, apostles, Imperfect men. The prophets, some of those were failed in their mission. The evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, he gave the church something, and what he has gifted is verbally, what he has gifted is verbally gifted men. Matter of fact, when, when Paul writes to Timothy a letter on how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, He says this in 1 Timothy 3.15, This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
So it's not so much those men that are important, but what they do. They verbally proclaim God's Word. Colin Hansen said this, hearing the sermon isn't just about you and your personal walk with Jesus. It's also about shaping a heavenly culture and building a heavenly city in your very church. It's about shaping life together. And God gifts to the church men who proclaim God's truth, and that is one of the primary ways in which God, Christ, builds His church. But notice what that results in. The next word, verse 12, to equip the saints to perfect them through God's Word being proclaimed and really, that is supported in several places in Scripture, and probably one of the most well-known places is 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And of course, it moves through those different categories, and it says to equip the man and, per and, and perfectly furnish him, completely furnish him for every good work. That's what Ephesians 4 is saying, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Don't hear this next statement wrong. Elders, overseers are primarily equippers, not event planners. We are called to proclaim, to preach and teach, to disciple, and to equip. And sometimes we will utilize events to do that, but it's not always synonymous with equipping. What does an equipping ministry result in? Look at verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. And then verse 16, so that it builds itself up in love, right? The training wheels come off. There's an equipping. And now the body starts to build itself up. Again, a term for growth. Harmony, not dissonance. Construction, not demolition. Do you know that any time we tear down a, a, a true brother or sister in Christ or a biblical preacher and a ministry that is heralding the good news, we are fracturing and crushing like an injury, the body of Christ? Instead, we aim for verse 13. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, terms of growth. How is that done? Look back up at chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And yes, that requires differing degrees of theological alignment, theological agreement, but that's not ordinarily the problem, is it? It's primarily, as Paul addresses, relational, not doctrinal. Doctrine is important. Look at chapter 4, 4 to 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Yes, and amen. But those aren't the points of our disagreement because it's often relational, not doctrinal, even though we hang it under the banner of theology or doctrine. 
The problem is, go back to verse 14, that we need to no longer be children. And we need to, verse 15, grow up. So that, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it supplies is healthy and unified and whole, not fractured or splintered or continually in a cast trying to mend. And that, verse 16, makes the body grow. The same word used in verse 12, but now the given goal is love so that it builds itself up in love. This is the point that I'll close with. We are not just going somewhere and we're not just trying to add people. We're becoming something. We're becoming, hopefully, like Jesus Christ Himself and our mission is to construct people's lives. That's our mission. First, by proclaiming Jesus. And as they follow and learn from Him, they grow and are discipled and are equipped. So churches should be filled with people who are becoming more like Christ. More loving. More joyful. Less critical. More sacrificial. And more servant-minded. And you're going to hear this probably for the rest of the year. Jesus said in John 13, just as I have loved you. And by the way, it's unconditional. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I'm going to ask the music team to come forward while I ask three questions. From this, how churches grow, how can you proactively help to maintain unity in this church? Secondly, who do you find difficult to be patient towards here? And how can a deep love of Christ or the Gospel work deep into your heart enable you to remain loving and like Christ towards that person? Because it's here when we gather together that we, we apply the one another's. Love one another. Honor one another more than yourselves. Bear with one another. And third, how well is Highlands reaching, welcoming, and uniting people of diverse backgrounds? And how might you contribute to those efforts? Jesus said He would build His church. And He does so person by person. He does so with you in making disciples through love, humility, and unity. And guess what? The gates of hell cannot prevail against that. Let's pray.